Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. It is Q4 day one. I don't know. It's some little short designation for the first day of the fourth quarter. It's also October the 1st, making it, oh, the birthday of Jimmy Carter. He's actually 96 today. That puts him in a just incredibly small percentage of people around the world um, who reach such an age. Um, Just acknowledging that, you know, it was a few years ago now that he shared on a on a Sunday morning during the Sunday school class that he continues to teach that he'd been diagnosed with brain cancer. It, you know, it, it is extraordinary that um, he not only survived that, but is continuing to thrive. So just want to, you know, celebrate life today, celebrate long life, celebrate longevity, and then also celebrate the reality that, you know, as a brother in Christ, uh, his life expectancy has very little to do with how many days and years he lives here and the reality that he is in a restored relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and therefore he's going to live forever. And and, and if that's business that you have not yet done with God, um, that's business I would encourage you to get done today. Life expectancy, as the world counts it, is, is days and years. When we start talking about life expectancy for Christians, actually for everybody, we're talking about life eternal. The question is whether... You are going to spend that eternal life in the presence or in the absence of the living God. And that actually does make all the difference. And there's only one way, so says Jesus, to the Father, and that is through the Son and by the power of the Holy Spirit. So just encourage you to to consider that this morning. Uh, So Governor Gavin Newsom in California on Wednesday signed a collection of what I will call policing reform bills outlawing the use of chokeholds, allowing the State Department of Justice to investigate police shootings, giving counties added oversight of their sheriff's departments. I mean, the list is actually very long. Um, And it reminded me that there really have been a wave of reform bills across the United States following the death of George Floyd um, while in police custody in in the Twin Cities back in May. And and so when people um, say nothing's happening, actually, there's a lot happening in terms of the way communities, cities, uh, and even states are now approaching the conversation about what law enforcement is asked to do that actually goes beyond the scope of law enforcement, all of those things that are related to mental health and, uh, and things related to community policing, as we, might, as we might call it, or coming to call it. And so packages of reform have been, or reform packages have been passed in uh, California, Minnesota, um, Pennsylvania, Washington State, Connecticut, New York, Arizona, Texas, Iowa, D.C., um, Florida, Colorado. I'm scanning the list here. Texas. Um, and they cover a range of Georgia, Massachusetts, Minnesota, 
Kentucky. They cover a range of of categories, bans on tear gas and chokeholds, body cameras, uh, a conversation about transparency, um, including things like disbanding plainclothes anti-crime units. Like it's, it's interesting when they talk about transparency, exactly what they're talking about in some of these bills. There are also lots of conversations um, that are taking form across the country in terms of new ways uh, to police local communities. And uh, and so be a part of that. Be a part of those conversations. Um, find out in your own community what would be helpful and then, you know, become a person who actually participates in making the community in which you live a better place by coming alongside law enforcement and finding out how you might help, particularly in those areas where they are being asked to do things that actually are not about the enforcement of the law. They are about um, spaces and places where the church is really in a really good position, better position to step in because what is going on uh, are the breakdown of human relations and people's desperate needs for a restoration of health and mental health and community, uh, a restoration of the self and uh, you know, in those primary relationships where we understand who we are and uh, and why we're here. So I'm just encouraging you to get involved in those ways today. Ben Johnson is waiting right now to join me. He and I are going to talk about how faith shapes our politics. We're also going to look at um, action in Kentucky, where it looks like the attorney general is going to release grand jury uh, tapes to satisfy uh, protesters there in Louisville. Um, and then uh, we're going to talk about ballot harvesting ballot harvesting. Did you even know that was a thing? Yeah, I didn't until recently, but it is. We're talking about all that up next here on Mornings with Carmen. This is my right. Joining me now, Ben Johnson. He is an editor at Acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. He's got a couple of pieces there I want to direct your uh, t- uh, direct you to. One is the worst moment of the first presidential debate in 2020. And the other is Amy Coney Barrett, Handmaid of the Lord, Not the State. Encourage you to uh, go and check out what Ben is writing about at Acton dot O-R-G. Ben, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Good morning, Carmen. Good morning. Good morning. And let me just ask a, a, a big, wide-open question here. Um, how does your faith shape your politics? Right. I, I think that that's one of the most pivotal things that we look at. Faith shapes every aspect of us. We know uh, that faith isn't just a, a personal relationship with Jesus, but it, in fact, uh, once we realize our relationship with Christ, we progressively live out what it means for us as people of faith to bring that reality into every other capacity that we have in our capacity in the home, in our capacity at work, and in our capacity as voters. So uh, I think that uh, that's something that uh, even polls have shown demonstrably over and over again. The more religious that someone is in, in their terminology, which is to say the more, li- the more faithful someone is in terms of their church attendance, the more that they are likely to say that uh, religion is important to them and that their faith drives their moral compass, 
the more likely they are uh, to vote and to vote uh, according to the prescriptions of their own faith. So uh, I think that faith is uh, determinative for us. It doesn't surprise me, uh, for example, that uh, David Brooks recently wrote a column talking about how his religion changed his point of view. I certainly changed the politics of Moses and Daniel and Jeremiah and Nehemiah. So uh, we, we continue to see how faith progressively informs the worldview that we bring to bear. Uh, you know, Peter tells us to pray for our rulers. The Apostle Paul tells us to obey our rulers. But in a democratic Republican system like this, we are the rulers. And so we have to bring that insight of what it is that our faith teaches on the most important moral issues that we face, find out where the rulers stand on those issues, and then vote accordingly. All right. Um, I'm, <clears throat> I'm asking you this next question because it's such a complex situation, and I'm hoping that you can at least begin to help us pull these threads apart. Um, so this is the Breonna Taylor case in Kentucky. And the grand jury did not determine to um, what charge uh, charge the officers involved um, with with murder or actually with any charges that you know say they resulted in her death. We now know that the attorney general did not uh, did not seek murder charges in the case, which means that he didn't he didn't recommend those to the jury like it wasn't even on the table. And so now we have this this request to not only release the grand jury recordings, um, but we have a judge saying that that needs to happen by noon on Friday. So it's been delayed until Friday, but it's also going to happen um, by noon tomorrow. Um, Let me just I I just tell you, I find it really surprising that I thought grand jury testimonies, I thought the things that they said was like sealed. It was like sacrosanct. Apparently not. Yeah, this would be like a priest going out and telling everyone what you said in confession, essentially. Uh, that was how yeah, yeah, we yeah. were I don't. I mean, you know, I, I don't, that would freak me out a little bit, right? Right. There's, there, it's known as a seal. And, you know, it's not a seal if you continually break it. Uh, and that's that's part of our contract here with the grand jury is that they see the evidence. They are the experts on this. And you don't just open it up for PR reasons. So, uh, yeah, I, I think that uh, where we're undermining our norms uh, of how jurisprudence is actually done, that we aren't ruled by the mob, but we're ruled by institutions of law, including a grand jury, which under our constitutional system is made up of a jury of our peers chosen from our community, uh, then I, we have to have faith in their understanding and not yield to mob rule. All right. Um, you and I have to take a very brief break. But, uh, you know, I feel like that's a situation that we're going to probably need to continue to talk about. So will you keep your um, will you keep your at least side eye on that situation in Kentucky? Because I think that in the coming weeks, we're going to want to talk more about that. It's certainly going to be uh, an issue in the headlines, no doubt about it. Yeah. All right. Uh, when we come back from the break, can we talk about ballot harvesting? I didn't even know it was a thing, but it is harvest season. So can we talk about that next, Ben? You and I will go into the ballot garden here in a moment. <laughs> going into the ballot garden. All right, that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. We're going down to the river, down to the river, down to the river to pray. Yes, we're going down to the river, but we're also going into the ballot garden. We're going to talk about ballot harvesting. Ben Johnson from the Acton Institute is here to help us understand what is alleged, what is legal, and how in the world we got to this place. Ben. 
That's my that's my setup, man. There's the ball on the tee for you. Yeah, ballot harvesting. I mean, that's that's one of those terms that seems impenetrable. Or like, I understand those words, but why are they placed together? Mm-hmm. Ballot harvesting, of course, ballots in in terms of voting and harvesting, sounding just as opportunistic and undermining of our democracy as it truly is. There are people who go around trying their best to get a hold of blank val- blank ballots so that they can vote for the people who are involved. Uh, it is legal in some cases to quote unquote help people who are who are voting through mail-in ballots. They will request a ballot, and people will then go around, uh, for example, in nursing homes, and uh, help them quote unquote fill out the ballot and then send it in for them. Uh, in many in Minnesota, for example, there was a law saying that you can only do this for three people at a time, but it was suspended over the summer. There is a project called Project Veritas, James O'Keefe's undercover group, which has also exposed Planned Parenthood in the past. It's how he got his start, along with Lila Rose. Uh, they they went undercover in Minneapolis. One of the leaders of the Somali community said that a staffer for Ilhan Omar named Ali Issa Ghani runs a cash-for-vote scheme. He pays two to three hundred ballot dollars for every ballot that he receives. They purported to show him with three hundred blank ballots in his car. And allegedly, this is how it's going. The Minneapolis Police Department said on Monday they are looking into these allegations that uh, Ilhan Omar's staffer is involved in illegal ballot harvesting, that he has hundreds upon hundreds of ballots, and that he is paying people and then filling them out in their name and mailing them in, and they have nothing to do with it. So uh, in some cases, it seems as though the ballot could be for sale. Minneapolis police are looking into that. But I think that places for us an idea of just how fragile this election and how fragile our uh, democratic republic truly is. You know, here you have a case of hundreds of ballots in in one car. In Massachusetts, 18,000 ballots were thrown out in one election. In New York State, 100,000 ballots were mailed out, and they had the wrong name on them. So if anyone had cast a vote on with one of those ballots, their ballot would have been rejected. We don't know if anyone did. But uh, we're talking about, uh, just between this count, uh, almost 120,000 ballots between these couple of cases Florida in 2000 was decided by 537 votes, which determined the 2000 election and all of the consequential things that happened in our post 9-11 world. So that tells you just exactly the kind of margin we're dealing with. Uh, And for for those of us who are Christians, uh, this kind of ballot harvesting and these sort of electoral shenanigans are incredibly consequential for the sort of world that we're looking at when some of us play by the rules and cast our vote based on our faith and other people break the Ten Commandments in order to gain a political victory. It's interesting there that you point to the Ten Commandments. Um, I'm not sure those are the guiding principles for an increasing number of Americans. I I was, uh, I can't even remember who I was talking about this with, but um, we have this, we have this awareness now that even being honest and dealing honestly with integrity is not uh, is not valued by a growing percentage of younger Americans. And so I think that, Ben, when I have the expectation that you and I are going to have a conversation, we're going to deal honestly with one another about the facts that are before us. When we're speculating about something or when we're offering commentary, we're going to tell people that's what we're doing. Um, we're, you know, we're going to present the facts as as we know them. And if other facts 
come forward, then we're going to present those facts as well. Like we're, you know, the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And if we misspeak or or discover that we've said something that's not aligned with the truth because we're people of truth, we're going to go ahead and tell on ourselves like we're going to rat our own selves out. Um, We're going to confess publicly before our sisters and brothers that, you know, we said something that was inaccurate and we want to clarify. We want to rectify the wrong. Increasingly, with younger Americans, um, telling the truth is not a value. Uh, Getting your way, getting what you want is the value at any cost. And that fundamentally changes uh, my expectations of how I'm going to live in community with other people if I can't trust them to be truthful. Yeah, I think increasingly we live in a post-truth world where a lot of people don't believe there is such a thing as objective truth. And we've gone through a long march of the institutions all the way from existential thinkers and Jacques Derrida and and people of this sort all the way to the current uh, situation that we find ourselves in where instead in the old days we would have heard facts or truth guiding a conversation. Today you increasingly hear the word narrative and people believe Mm -hmm. that there is a narrative that drives things. That's that's what really motivates people is this this idea that they're in some sort of grand arc of history. And as long as they can find their place in that, the details of whether they're what they're doing is moral or immoral don't particularly enter their mind because they have a new set of moral principles that replace the old ones. You know, in England, 25 percent of school children can't name one Ten Commandment, one of the Ten Commandments, not a single one, including thou shalt not kill. Uh, That's a little petrifying. They're more secular than we are. But uh, we are on that same trajectory here in the United States where the moral principles that guided all of the uh, institutions that we have are under uh, under assault. That's a problem because our common law and our our constitution, all of our institutions were founded on the idea that uh, you didn't have to be a Christian or a person of faith in order to participate in them, but that the understanding of how they work and function presupposes a people who are moral and virtuous and religious and they value things like truth, like community. They value things like dealing honestly and fairly. And you know, our entire First Amendment was based on the idea that truth and falsehood can fight it out the public arena, and truth will always win if people are exposed to both sides. People will have the common sense and the good grace to choose what is correct. And increasingly, that proposition has been discarded in favor of uh, this sort of politics uberales, my, my uh, will to power for, uh, forsaking any kind of moral dealing with my fellow human beings. That's how we become a more violent society. It's not how we become a more perfect union. Uh, Paul, can you clip that, like, two minutes of talking that Ben just did? And, I don't know, let's just run that over and over and over again. <laughs> I can do that. I can do that. Uh, uh, I think that is a an excellent diagnosis of what's happening in the culture. Um, it's very well said. And... It troubles my heart, but it also provides me a way to be praying, and it provides me a way to be engaging, particularly with younger people in the culture, where I could actually say to them, um, does truth, does getting to the truth actually matter? And do you believe that, you know, if truth and falsehood are, are both presented, you'd be able to discern the difference between the two? And would you then side with truth no matter what? I think that is... One of the most troubling things to me, Ben, even if the truth is proved out, even if it's proven out that this is true and this is not true, people still are not necessarily siding with the truth because the truth does not fit 
their narrative, the narrative that they are um, seeking to be a part of and advocate in advance. And I just so very well said, uh, probably a little depressing for some of our listeners, but also um, very helpful in terms of helping us understand the world in which we live, where we are called to be, uh, you know, ambassadors of the king and the kingdom. And ultimately, we believe in a God who is truth, and we know that he prevails. So whatever it is that society may momentarily uh, believe, the Lord Jesus Christ and his truth will shine out. I'm glad that we have a a group called Project Veritas, but uh, as good as that is, I believe in the way, the truth, and the life. He will always overcome whatever our political landscape may happen to tell us. Amen, amen, and amen. Ben Johnson, as always, thank you so much. For joining us, you guys can follow Ben on Twitter at The Rights Writer. You can read what he is writing at Acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. Ben, as always, thank you. Thank you, thank you. Thank you, and God bless. Likewise. We'll be right back. Today's the 1st of October, so I'm sure I have um, new things to say about everything happening in October here at the Faith Radio Network, and I'm going to tell you about that in just a minute. But Bruce Ashford is up next. We love talking with Bruce. Um, He's an excellent hmm, diagnostician about what's happening in the culture and bringing the Christian faith to bear. And so next up, my conversation with Bruce Ashford. And in the meantime, I'm going to find out what I'm supposed to be talking about in October. Paul's going to help me. We'll be right back. Uh, Paul Perot, I'm about to make a declaration about you. Uh, what? You're totally a geek. Yeah. Like in the middle of that little promo that we just heard uh, about, you know, people becoming involved and butterflies flapping their wings and yeah. all of that. Yeah. You you announced the name of it, which is quantum entanglement. <laughs> yeah. And I have to say to myself, my producer is a geek. But I love that Guilty. about you. Guilty. I love that about you. Guilty. Okay, so um, it's not just quantum entanglement, right? It is kingdom entanglement, and we would like for you to be entangled with us in this way. So that um, not as we flap uh, wings here, but I guess as we flap our jaws here, um, the word of God would not only go forth and accomplish that for which God has purposed it, but we would get to participate in that. It is so cool. To, um, to be able to say, I am, I am actively a part of what's happening through the ministry of the Faith Radio Network. It's, um, it's really, it's a great joy. Uh, I just got my annual subscription notice, by the way, for, um, for Sirius XM. And it, it's, it, in order to have Sirius XM and the app and have access to their web features, like it's, um, it's 300 and some bucks a year. Well, let me just tell you, it's free. It's free. What you're doing right now is free. And we, we provide this as a ministry to, uh, to anyone who wants to partake of what God is doing in and through the ministry of Faith Radio. On air, over the uh, internet, via the Faith Radio app. Um, we don't charge anybody anything for any of it. But the only way we can do that is because listeners come alongside us and say, I actually want to be a part of um, this. Uh, what did you call it? It's not it, this. This quantum entanglement. Qu- you, but uh, you said kingdom entanglement. I know. I like that. Right? Uh, that can you think we can coin cooler. that? Yeah. yeah. So you can be a part of this kingdom entanglement, and uh, and as we flap here, 
um, God does things in other parts of the world, touches people, and it's really cool. And it's, it's probably an analogy that breaks down somewhere, but I think you get the point. So log on to MyFaithRadio.com, and if you're in a position to do so, uh, give. Today's the first day of the fourth quarter. Maybe you want to give um, a gift and appreciation for some, some way that God has touched you in the last three quarters, or you want to say, you know what, I want to impact somebody's life in the fourth quarter of 2020, and this is the way um, that I feel God is leading me to do it. So there you go. All kinds of opportunities. Uh, just get all entangled up with us. Kingdom entanglement. There you go. That's, that's, my, uh, that's, my, that's my encouragement. Oh, Bruce Ashford, up next. We'll be right back. Remember as a kid, your mom or dad would say, I told you so. If you're like me, it probably didn't inspire warm fuzzies in your relationship, did it? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. When you made mistakes, you didn't want to hear your mom and dad rub it in. And your kids don't want to feel shame from you when they've made mistakes either. When they've messed up, beware of using comments like, you should have listened, I hope you learned your lesson, or I told you so. You don't have to shame your kids. They already know they made a mistake. Instead, stay quiet. Let the consequences teach the lesson and continue to love your child through the entire situation. Maybe you'll be the one to break the generational saying, I told you so. Do you have teenagers under your roof? Find more encouragement and helpful resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org. Again today, Dr. Bruce Ashford. He's the provost at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. You can find him at BruceAshford.net. Bruce, welcome back. Hey, it's great to be on the show. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Happy autumn. It's officially the fourth quarter, so I don't know. I, I feel like uh, we turn a leaf at this time of the year. And um, so are the leaves changing color where you live? Uh, not quite. Uh, not, yeah. not very much, but uh, the, the mornings are crisp and cool, which is a nice break. Yeah, us too. Us too. A little bit, a little bit of fall. Feeling a little bit of fall. Let's um, let's start with a piece you have posted on the case for Amy Coney Barrett. Make the case that Amy Coney Barrett should be, in fact, the next person named as a justice to the Supreme Court of the United States. Yeah. So she, I think, is a, a very good uh, choice on on the part of uh, President Trump. I, I wrote an article about a, a week ago for First Things Magazine, arguing that he should nominate her. And uh, she's been criticized pretty relentlessly. Uh, she was a potential nominee back when uh, Kavanaugh was nominated a couple years ago. And Senator Dianne Feinstein criticized her and says that uh, her Catholic dogma lives loudly within her. And that is of concern. And then just a number of other folks on the left picked apart her faith. She's a conservative Catholic, and she's involved in a um, group called uh, People of Praise, which is just a group of people who... Uh, seek to intentionally uh, live out their Christian faith. But uh, I would just uh, want to respond and say what's different between her and the dozens and dozens of other Supreme Court justices historically who have also lived out their Christian faith or Jewish faith. And I think the difference is just that we have a politicized Supreme Court right now, and this is the uh, lowest hanging fruit, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's Uh, so curious. I mean, I I think the attacks are so curious to me, um, particularly when we start talking about someone simply living out 
their sincerely held convictions. Um, We all do that. Like, no matter what your sincerely held convictions are, that's what you live out. I mean, if you are a person who has an integrated intellectual, spiritual, uh, and vocational life, to suggest that you could so privatize your religious faith as to stick it in a box and have it not influence any other part of your life, I think that's a window into the worldview of people who imagine uh, that religious convictions are not real and they are not substantive in terms of influencing life itself. Yeah, it's a misunderstanding of religion, that uh, mm-hmm. religion is some kind of only some kind of a formal ceremonial thing that, that people do in an organized institutional manner, whereas the Bible says that everybody's deeply religious. If you want to find a person's religion, find whatever they've made absolute or ultimate in their life. And it might be the God of Jesus Christ, or it could be sex or money or power uh, or something else. And so everybody is a worshiper, and our worship, whatever it is we hold to be ultimate, does radiate outward into our life. And Amy Barrett is no um, exception to that. So I listed in the article three criteria by which we should judge Supreme Court justices. I think these are the three categories under which uh, most of our assessment falls. And the first is legal credentials. And Amy Coney Barrett is, her legal credentials are impeccable. She -hmm. was on faculty at Notre Dame Law for, for years. She clerked for Justice Scalia. She has published extensively in law journals and now has been served on the Court of uh, Court of Appeals. The second thing, and this is really important, is that her judicial philosophy, her philosophy of what a Supreme Court justice is and what she should do, is exactly right. She believes, unlike justices on the left uh, these days, she believes that the job of a Supreme Court justice is to rule on the basis of the Constitution. And when you're interpreting the Constitution, you should interpret it the way the founding fathers and the people of the United States would have interpreted it at the time that it's written. And the reason this is so contentious is back in the 70s and 80s, uh, especially at Harvard Law School, there arose a view called the living document view. And it was the view that Constitution is, you know, to put it in a colorful way, like a wax nose. And uh, the Supreme Court justices are more like moral philosophers who should determine what is right and wrong and then can sort of bend the Constitution in the direction that they wish. They can insert things into it that aren't really there, like uh, uh, they did with Roe v. Wade and Obergefell v. Hodges. They can, they can take things out of it, uh, in a sense, uh, that they want to take out. And this is a dangerous view. And we've seen what happens when people treat the Bible this way. As a, as a wax nose. So we've seen the negative uh, effects of it in the religious realm, and you can also see the negative effects in the uh, judicial realm. And I think Scalia wrote this great article. I don't forget the exact title of it. It was something like uh, No Need for Mullahs at One First Street or some, some, something like that. And, and the point is this, that founding fathers envisioned the American people via the legislature uh, making judgments on moral matters, not the Supreme Court. Supreme Court interprets the Constitution and, and the case law that has uh, flowed from that. And so uh, Amy Coney Barrett will not be a mullah or a priest. She'll be interpreter of the Constitution. Then the last thing is just personal character, that uh, character matters in office. And she seems to be a conscientious person. Very important for Supreme Court justice to take take the time to really get into the details of things and make a, an accurate judgment. She seems to be wise and discerning, seems to be trustworthy, kind of person who couldn't get uh, bought off. So uh, I think she's eminently qualified. 
Yeah, I think that the um, the article, the piece that you're referring to, um, based on a speech that Scalia gave maybe, gosh, nearly a decade ago, and it was something like Mullahs of the West, where he was talking yeah. about judges. I feel like moral arbiter was a part of his uh, part of the way that he framed that. So anyway, um, you and I could both be Googling that now. Um, all right, Bruce, let's take a very brief break. Um, you've, you have made the case well for Amy Coney Barrett. When we come back, I'd love to change subjects and talk with you as a Southern Baptist, talk with you about this conversation taking place in the largest Protestant, it's not even a denomination, but we refer to it that way, uh, largest Protestant expression here in the United States of America, n- known formally as the Southern Baptist Convention, but the conversation about maybe beginning to identify as Great Commission Baptists. So that conversation up next with Dr. Bruce Ashford. He is the provost of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We'll be right back. Rejoining my conversation now with Dr. Bruce Ashford, provost of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. You can find him at bruceashford.net. Bruce, what to make of the conversation that maybe Southern Baptists might begin identifying as Great Commission Baptists? Yeah, you know, as with anything in Baptist life, uh, this is disputed. <laughs> you know, anytime you have three, three Baptists in a room, you've got four opinions. So, uh, yeah, you know, there's been a number of times in the history of the SBC that there have been votes to change the name. And then in 2012, a resolution was passed that where the convention said, listen, if your church would like to call itself a Great Commission Baptist Church instead of a quote unquote Southern Baptist Church, you're welcome to do that. And it's, uh, you know, legally in most states, this is referred to as a DBA, doing business as. So it's a Southern Baptist church legally in terms of the legal name of, of uh, the convention, but uh, a church could do business as a Great Commission Baptist church. So you've got some people who love this because they want to, instead of a uh, sort of regional designator, we get to have a more of a theological and spiritual designator, Great Commission. You've got some people that dislike it quite a bit. They think it's some sort of capitulation or rejection of all of Southern culture or I mean, you've got some other people listing some other kind of objections. And then in the middle, you have some people, I think, that don't really care. They're not going to use either descriptor in the name of their church. They're just going to, as churches do, uh, you know, have like one name, Refuge Church, Redemption Church, Re-Elevation Church, or something like that, you know. But uh, so the argument I would make is that I like it. You want me to go into a little bit of detail as why why I like it? Sure. I mean, I I attend a church that is affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention, but that's actually not in the signage. It's not—I mean, you have to—you'd have to ask a layer deeper question um, of anybody in our church to find out, you know, who we're affiliated with. I mean, because we're just Grace Community. Like, that's our church name, and that's who we seek to be and the identity we seek to live into. And I would— embrace being able to describe us as Great Commission Baptists, because it gives us an opportunity, I think, to talk about the Great Commission, which is far too veiled today. And I think it pulls us forward. It's a forward-looking, it's aspirational, maybe is the word that I would use. And so those are some of the things I like about it. Yeah, it's uh, our church is uh, similar. We're the Summit Church, but we do tell our people from, remind our people from time to time, which convention we're affiliated with, and we use uh, Great Commission language. So a few reasons why I think this is helpful. One is that the churches of the Southern Baptist Convention are no longer united by Southern heritage, shared Southern heritage. That 
might have been true, you know, a long time ago, but it's not true today. We have quite a few churches in the North and in the West, and it's just kind of an odd conversation. Hey, why are you a Southern Baptist church? Is it just for people from the South to attend here? Uh, no. Well, then why are you called Southern? Is it uh, Southern culture? Well, no. And so we're not united by a shared uh, Southern heritage. A second thing is that, unfortunately, in our denomination's history, the Southern split from uh, Northern churches revolved around the propriety of owning slaves, and in particular, whether someone can be appointed a missionary if they were a slave owner. And uh, Southern Baptist churches at the time took the wrong uh, stance on that. And so to switch to a better designator like Great Commission Baptist is a realistic recognition of past sins. It's not a wholesale dismissal of Southern Baptist past because there's so much uh, good in uh, Southern Baptist Convention heritage, but the Southern nomenclature does evoke memories of past uh, sins. Then, so if Southern doesn't describe who we are now or who we want to be, I think Great Commission Baptist describes our past, present, and future pretty well. It's what we aspire to be now and in the future, and it's what we have been in the past. Baptists have always been known uh, as being at the forefront of missions and church planting, and that's what Great Commission Baptist does is it reminds people. And you know, there's a number of different versions of, of the Great Commission, you know, uh, John's version, in John's version, Jesus says, as the Father sent me, so I, I send you. I'll focus on that one for a moment. And as Jesus said this to his disciples, he showed them the holes in his hands and his side, as if to say to them, if I got persecuted, you will, you will also. But the same Spirit of God, Jesus was saying, that raised me from the dead will walk alongside of you. And so go and proclaim this great truth that even while religious, military, and political leaders were colluding to strip naked and beat and kill, slaughter the Son of God publicly. Even while that was happening, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit were conspiring to bring about the greatest event uh, in history, which was the sal salvation offered to all of mankind. So, uh, you know, while Southern Baptist churches don't have to use the description Great Commission Baptist, because the commission doesn't ever tell a local church what they have to do, they're certainly welcome to, and I think it's a pretty good conversation starter. Um, okay, so before we let you go, um, and again, I'm talking with Dr. Bruce Ashford from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, sebts.org. You can also find him at bruceashford.net. Can we just talk for just a second about theological education? And sure. Because I think that there are people listening who, you know, they'd love to study more and go deeper than they've gone, but the whole idea of a theological education is just kind of like, scary and maybe a little off-putting. So I just want you to just sort of be invitational about theological education. Yeah, listen, we have, uh, we've got uh, upwards of uh, close to now 5,000 students here at Southeastern Seminary, and so many of them are like many of you out there in Radio Land that you, uh, love, the, you love the Bible and you would love to learn more, uh, but you, you can't move to the campus of a seminary. And so we would just invite you, listen, it, it doesn't matter what walk of life you're in, we've got undergrad, master's and doctoral level programs and the undergrad and, and master's level, you can do your studies online and you don't have to take a degree if you don't want. You can just say, hey, I want to take New Testament one and two, or I want to take book of Isaiah or the book of Romans, a class on you know, something like that. Or you could take uh, Christian theology one and two, or uh, you, if you want to do uh, counseling, we've got classes in biblical counseling. If you're somebody who likes to help give counsel and comfort to people. So uh, theological education shouldn't be off-putting. I mean, it's a very warm and welcoming environment here, 
uh, for anyone who wants to learn. You don't have to necessarily be in intending to go into any kind of full-time vocational ministry. Uh, you just have to be somebody who wants to study the living words of a living Lord as revealed in Scripture and, and somebody who wants to then take uh, those truths and apply them in their lives. I also just want to say that one of the really cool things about um, about Southeastern is that, like, when you go to the website, let's just say that I have a friend who wants to go deeper, but, I mean, they, they're from a different part of the world. They don't speak the language I speak. You can actually... Can, you can actually explore this in Spanish, Farsi, Chinese, Korean, and Japanese. Like, Bruce, I got to tell you, not everybody is doing that. Not everybody is is trying to make sure that theological education at the highest level is available to non-English speakers and, yeah, and recognizing— Right. And recognizing that people are going to go and serve in places where e where English is not the primary language. I mean, it's just it's it, it's at the growing edge and it's not just digital and available. It's it's also very, very forward looking and globally concerned. And so I just I just wanted to tell you that I appreciate that. Yeah, we, it's a it's a wonderful place to serve. And uh, for example, we've got upwards of a thousand Iranian leaders studying with us uh, through uh, creative means. We'll put it that way. Yeah, they, see, they that's live just so cool. It's so yeah. cool. Yeah, it's so cool. All right, that's Bruce Ashford. You, you, if you want to check out what is happening in theological education, um, check out what's happening at Southeastern, sebts.edu. Um, you can also visit with Bruce um, at his website, bruceashford.net. Bruce, as always, thanks for joining us. Hey, it's been great to be on the show. Thank you so much, Carmen. Absolutely. We'll be right back. So when you consider how you're going to walk your faith out into the world that God so loves today, let me simply encourage you to first acknowledge the God who is, the God who really is, and just revel for a moment in his love. God loves you personally, passionately, purposefully, God loves you. And God has already prepared in advance the good works that he intends for you to do today. God has already provided um, the means by which you could accomplish his will in all of the divine appointments that he has already set. And so let me encourage you to yield to God's presence and providence and to the purposes that he has laid out for today, go ahead and expect God to present you with opportunities to be present in the lives of other people on his behalf. we got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.